Chapter 4, Part 2 of Zone Policeman 88. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. Zone Policeman 88, A Close-Range Study of the Panama Canal and Its Workers by Harry A. Frank. Chapter 4, Part 2. The different levels varied from ten to twenty feet one above the other, each with a railroad on it, back and forth along which incessantly rumbled and screeched dirt trains full or empty, halting before the steam shovels that shivered and spouted thick black smoke as they ate away the rocky hills and cast them in great giant hands full on the train of one-sided flat cars that moved forward bit by bit at the flourish of the conductor's yellow flag. Steam shovels that seemed human in all except their mammoth fearless strength tore up the solid rock with snorts of rage and the panting of industry, now and then flinging some troublesome, stubborn boulder angrily upon the cars. Yet they could be dainty as human fingers, too, could pick up a railroad spike or push a rock gently an inch further across the car. Each was run by two white Americans, or at least what would prove such when they reached the shower bath in their quarters. The craneman far out on the shovel arm, the engineer within the machine itself with a labyrinth of levers demanding his unbroken attention. Then there was, of course, a gang of negroes, firemen, and the like attached to each shovel. All the day through I climbed and scrambled back and forth between the different levels, dodging from one track to another and along the rocky floor of the canal, needing eyes and ears both in front and behind not merely for trains, but for a hundred hidden and unknown dangers to keep the nerves taut. Now and then a palatial motor car, like some railroad breed of taxi, sped by with its musical, insistent, jingling bells, usually with one of the countless parties of government guests or tourists in spotless white which the dry season brings. Dirt trains kept the right of way, however, for the work always comes first at Panama. Or it might be the famous yellow car itself with members of the commission. Once it came all but empty, and there dropped off inconspicuously a man in baggy duck trousers, a black alpaca coat of many wrinkles, and an unassuming straw hat, a white-haired man with blue, almost babyish blue eyes, a cigarette dangling from his lips as he strolled about with restless yet quiet energy. There has been no flash and glitter of military uniforms on the zone since the French sailed for home, but everyone knew the colonel for all that, the soldier who has never seen service, who has never heard the shrapnel scream by overhead, yet to whom the world owes more thanks than six conquering generals rolled into one. Scores of tripod and star drills, whole battalions of deafening machines run by compressed air brought from miles away, are pounding and grinding and jamming holes in the living rock. After them will presently come nonchalantly strolling along gangs of the ubiquitous black powder men, and carelessly throw down boxes of dynamite and pound the drill holes full thereof and tamp them down ready to blow at 11.30 and 5.30 when the workmen are out of range. Those mighty explosions that, twelve times a week, set the porch chairs of every ICC house on the isthmus to rocking and are heard far out at sea. Anywhere near the drills is such a roaring and jangling that I must bellow at the top of my voice to be heard at all. The entire gamut of sound waves surrounds and enfolds me, and with it all the powerful Atlantic breeze sweeps deafeningly through the channel. Down in the bottom of the canal, if one step behind anything that shuts off the breeze, it is tropically hot. Yet up on the edge of the chasm above, the trees are always nodding and bowing before the ceaseless wind from off the Caribbean. 
Scores of switcheroos drows under their sheet iron wigwams, erected not so much as protection from the sun, for the drowsers are mostly negroes and immune to that, as from young rocks that the dynamite blasts frequently toss a quarter mile. Then over it all hang heavy clouds of soft coal dust from trains and shovels, shifting down upon the black, white, and mixed, and the enumerator alike, a dirty, noisy, perilous, enjoyable job. Everywhere are gangs of men, sometimes two or three gangs working together at the same task. Shovel gangs, track gangs, surfacing gangs, dynamite gangs. Gangs doing everything imaginable with shovel and pick and crowbar. Gangs down on the floor of the canal, gangs far up the steep walls of cut rock. Gangs stretching away in either direction, till those far off look like upright bands of the leaf-cutting ants of Panamanian jungles. Gangs nearly all, whatever their nationality, in the blue shirts and khaki trousers of the zone commissary, giving a peculiar color scheme to all the scene. Now and then the boss is a stony-eyed American with a black cigar clamped between his teeth. More often he is of the same nationality as the workers, quite likely from the same town, who jabbers a little imitation English, which is one of the reasons why a force of time inspectors is constantly dodging in and out over the job, time book and pencil in hand, lest some fellow townsman of the boss be earning his $1.50 a day under the shade of a tree back in the jungle. Here are Basques and their boinas, preferring their native Esquara to Spanish, French niggers and English niggers, whom it is to the interest of peace and order to keep as far apart as possible. Occasionally a few sunburned blonde men in a shovel gang, but they prove to be Teutons or Scandinavians, laborers of every color and degree, except American laborers, more than conspicuous by their absence. For the American Negro is an untractable creature in large numbers, and the caste system that forbids white Americans from engaging in common labor side by side with Negroes is to be expected in an enterprise of which the leaders are not only military men, but largely Southerners, however many may be shivering in the streets of Chicago or roaming hungrily through the byways of St. Louis. It is well so, perhaps. None of us who feels an affection for the zone would wish to see its atmosphere lowered from what it is to the brutal depths of our railroad construction camps in the states. The attention of certain state legislatures might advantageously be called to the zone's Spaniard's drinking cup. It is really a tin can on the end of a long stick, cover and all. The top is a punched sieve-like that the water may enter as it is dipped in the bucket with which the water boy strains along. In the bottom is a single small hole out of which spurts into the drinker's mouth a little stream of water as he holds it high above his head, as once he drank wine from his leather bota in far-off Spain. Many a Spanish gang comes entirely from the same town, notably Salamanca or Avila. I set them to staring and chattering by some simple remark about their birthplace. Fine view from the Paseo del Rastro, eh? Does the Puente Romano still cross the river? but I had soon to see such personalities, for picks and shovels lay idle as long as I remained in sight, and Uncle Sam was the loser. So many were the gangs that I advanced barely half a mile during this first day, and lost in my work forgot the hour until it was suddenly recalled by the insistent, strident tooting of whistles that forewarns the setting off of the dynamite charges from the little red electric boxes along the edge of the cut. I turned back towards Pariso, and, all but stumbling over little red wound wires everywhere on the ground, dodging in and out, running forward, halting or suddenly retreating, I worked my way gradually forward while all the world about me was upheaving and spouting and belching forth to the heavens, as if I had been caught in the crater of a volcano as it suddenly erupted without warning. 
The history of Panama is strewn with dynamite stories. Even the French had theirs in their 16% of the excavation of Culebra. In American annals, there is one for every week. Three days before, one of my empire friends set off one afternoon for a stroll through the cut he had not seen for a year. In a retired spot, he came upon two Negroes pounding an irregular bundle. What are you doing, boys? He inquired with idle curiosity. Just a brelden up this year dynamite, boss, languidly answered one of the blacks. My friend was one of those apprehensive, overcautious fellows, so rare on the zone. Without so much as taking his leave, he set off at a run. Some two car lengths beyond, an explosion pitched him forward and all but lifted him off his feet. When he looked back, the Negroes had left. Indeed, neither of them has reported for work since. Then there was Mac's case. In his ambition for census efficiency, Mac was in the habit of stopping workmen wherever he met them. One day, he encountered a Jamaican carrying a box of dynamite on his head, and, according to his custom, shouted, Hey, boy! Had your census taken yet? What that, boss? cried the Jamaican with wide open eyes as he threw the box at Mac's feet and stood at respectful attention. Somehow, Mac lacked a bit of his old zealousness thereafter. On the second day, I pushed past Cucaracha, scene of the greatest slide in the history of the canal when 47 acres went into the cut, burying under untold tons of earth and rock, steam shovels and railroads. Star and tripod drills and all else in sight except the roughnecks, who are far too fast on their feet to be buried against their will. One by one, I dragged shovel gangs away to a distance where my shouting could be heard. One by one, I commanded drill men to shut off their deafening machines. All day I dodged switching, snorting trains, clambered by steep rocky paths or ladders from one level to another, howling above the roar of the cut the time-worn questions, straining my ear to catch the answer. Many a Negro did not know the meaning of the word census and must have it explained to him in words of one syllable. Many a time I climbed to some lofty rock ledge lined with drills and gesticulating like a semaphore in signal practice, caught at last the wandering attention of a Negro to shout sore-throated above the incessant pounding of machines and the roaring of the Atlantic breeze. Hello, boy, census taken yet. A long stare, then, at last, perhaps the answer. Oh, yes, sir, boss. When and where? In Spanish town, Jamaica three year ago, sir which was not an attempt to be facetious, but an answer in all seriousness. Why should not one census, like one baptism, suffice for a lifetime? It was fortunate that enumerators were not accustomed to carry deadly weapons. Quick changes from Negro to Spanish gangs demonstrated beyond all future question how much more native intelligence has the white man. Rarely did I need to ask a Spaniard a question twice, still less ask him to repeat the answer. His replies came back sharp and swift as a pelota from a cesta. West Indians not only must hear the question an average of three times, but could seldom give the simplest information clearly enough to be intelligible, though ostensibly speaking English. A Spanish card one might fill out and be gone in less time than the Negro could be roused from his racial torpor. Yet of the Spaniards on the zone, surely 70% were wholly illiterate, while the Negroes from the British West Indies, thanks to their good fortune in being ruled over by the world's best colonist, could almost invariably read and write. Many of those shoveling in the cut have been trained in trigonometry. Few are the zoners now who do not consider the Spaniard the best workman ever imported in all the 65 years from the railroad surveying to the completion of the canal. The stocky, muscle-bound little fellows come no longer to America as conquistadors, but to shovel dirt, 
and yet more cheery, willing workers, more law-abiding subjects are scarcely to be found. It is unfortunate we could not have imported Spaniards for all the canal work. Even they have naturally learned some soldiering from example of lazy Negroes, who, where laborers must be had, are a bit better than no labor, though not much. The third day came, and high above me towered the rock cliffs of Culebra's palm-crowned hill, steam shovels approaching the summit in echelon, here and there an incipient earth and rock slide dribbling warningly down. He who still fancies the digging of the canal an ordinary task should have tramped with us through just our section, halting to speak to every man in it, climbing out of this man-made cannon twice a day, a strenuous climb even near its end, while at Culebra one looks up at all but unscalable mountain walls on either side. From time to time we hear murmurs from abroad that Americans are making light of catastrophes on the isthmus, that they cover up their great disasters by strict censorship of news. The latter is mere absurdity. As to catastrophes, a great slide or a premature dynamite explosion are serious disaster to Americans on the job, just as they would be to Europeans. But whereas the continental European would sit down before the misfortune and weep, the American swears a round oath, spits on his hands, and pitches in to shovel the slide out again. He isn't belittling the disasters. It is merely that he knows the canal has got to be dug and goes ahead and digs it. That is the greatest thing on the zone. Amid all the childish snarling of spigotties, the backbiting of Europe, the congressional wrangles, the cabinet politics, the man on the job, the colonel, the average American, the roughneck, goes right on digging the canal day by day as if he had never heard a rumor of all this outside noise. Mighty is the job from one point of view, yet tiny from another. With all his enormous equipment, his peerless ingenuity, and his feverish activity, all little man has succeeded in doing is to scratch a little surface wound in Mother Earth, cutting open a few superficial veins of water that trickle down the rocky face of the cut. By March 12th, we had carried our task past and under Empire Suspension Bridge, and the end of the cut was almost in sight. That day I clawed and scrambled a score of times up the face of rock walls. I zigzagged through long rows of negroes pounding holes in rock ledges. I stumbled and splashed my way through gangs of Martinique muckers. I slid down the face of government-made cliffs on the seat of my commissary breeches. I fought my way up again to stalk through long lines of men picking away at the dizzy edge of sheer precipices. I rolled down in the sand and rubble of what threatened to develop into slides. I crawled under snorting steam shovels to drag out besooted negroes. Negroes so besooted, I had to ask them their color. While dodging the gigantic swinging shovel itself, to say nothing of Dahobe blasts and rocks of the size of drummer's trunks that spilled from it as it swung. I climbed up into the quivering monster itself to interpret the engineer at his levers to shout at the crane man on his beam. I sprang aboard every train that was not running at full speed, walking along the running board into the cab, if not to get the engineer at least to gain new life from his private ice water tank. I scrambled over tenders and quarter miles of lidgerwood flats piled high with broken rock and earth, to scream at the American conductor and his black brakeman, often to find myself, by the time I had set down one of them, carried entirely out of my district, to Pedro Miguel or beyond the Chagra, to have to hit the grit in hobo fashion and catch something back to the spot where I left off. In short, I poked into every corner of the cut known to man, bawling in the November 1st voice of a presidential candidate to everything in trousers, Hey, had your senses taken yet? And what was my reward? 
From the northern edge of empire to where the cut sinks away into the Chagra and the low, flat country beyond, I enrolled just thirteen persons. It was then and there, though it still lacked an hour of noon, that I ceased to be a census enumerator. With slow and deliberate step, I climbed out of the canal and across a pathed field to Basobispo, and sitting down in the shade of her station, patiently awaited the train that would carry me back to Empire. 4,667 zone residents had I enrolled during those six weeks. Something over half of these were Jamaican. Of the states, Pennsylvania was best represented. Martinique Negroes, Greeks, Spaniards, and Panamanians were some 80% illiterate. Of some 300 of the first, only a half dozen even claimed to read and write, and non-wedlock was virtually universal among them. Rumor has it that there are 72 separate states and dependencies represented on the isthmus. My own cards showed a few less. Most conspicuous absences, besides American Negroes, were natives of Honduras, of four countries of South America, of most of Africa, and of entire Australia. That this was largely due to chance was shown by the fact that my fellow enumerators found persons from all these countries. I had enrolled persons born in the following places. All the United States, except three or four states in the far northwest. Canada, Mexico, Guatemala, Salvador, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama, Canal Zone, Colombia, Venezuela, British Guiana, Demerara, French and Dutch Guiana, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, and Chile, Cuba, Haiti, and Santo Domingo, Jamaica, Barbados, St. Vincent, Trinidad, St. Lucia, Montserrat, Dominica, Nevis, Nassau, Eleutheria, and Inagua, Martinique, Guadalupe, St. Thomas, Danish West Indies, Curacao and Tobago, England, Ireland, Scotland, Holland, Finland, Belgium, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Russia, France, Spain, Andorra, Portugal, Switzerland, Germany, Italy, Austria, Hungary, Greece, Serbia, Turkey, Canary Islands, Syria, Palestine, Arabia, India, from Tutacoran to Lahore, China, Japan, Egypt, Sierra Leone, South Africa, and the high seas. Where are you born, boy? I had run across a wrinkled old Negro who had worked more than 30 years for the PRR. Deed I don't know, boss. Oh, come, don't you know where you were born? For God, boss, I's telling you the truth. I don't know, because I was born to see. Well, what country are you a subject of? Truly, I can't say, boss. Well, what nationality was your father? I never see him, sir. Well, then, where the devil did you first land after you were born? Deed, I can't say, boss. Tink it were one of dem islands. Reckon I's a subject of the world, boss. Weeks afterward, the population of Uncle Sam's 10-by-50-mile strip of tropics was found to have been, on February 1st, 1912, 62,810. No, anxious reader, I am not giving away inside information. The source of my remarks is the public prints. Of these, about 25,000 were British subjects, West Indian Negroes with very few exceptions. Of the entire population, 37,428 were employed by the U.S. government. Of white Americans, of the Brahmin caste of the gold rule, there were employed on the zone, but 5,228. End of chapter 4, part 2.